Welcome to the podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. My name is Minnie Baragwanath, and this series is based on my book by the same name. Blindingly Obvious is my story. It is a candid and deeply personal story about my life and work as a blind woman, social entrepreneur, and innovator. I wrote it in order to share my experience of blindness with others and in the hope that it might raise awareness and invite others to actively create a more accessible future, one that is full of possibility. A wonderful voiceover artist and now friend of mine, Romy Hooper, has narrated my full book, all 24 chapters. I do so hope you enjoy listening. It is an absolute pleasure to be able to share it with you. 7. Turning Japanese In August 1990, I found myself on a plane bound for Tokyo, Japan. I was heading there to teach English to high school students. And no, I had never taught English before this moment. Nor did I know anyone in Japan. And I did not know anything about Japanese culture or society. Sushi was certainly not a mainstay of New Zealand cuisine in 1990. And no, I did not speak Japanese. This was all obviously going to go extremely well. This adventure had come about when an old flatmate of mine saw an advertisement for the JET, Japanese English Teaching, program in the local paper and suggested I might apply for it. I had graduated the year before and was wondering what work opportunities might be available to me now. Many friends were starting to go off travelling on their great Kiwi OE, but most were heading off to the UK or Europe. I was determined to travel. I refused to miss out on this important rite of passage because I could not see so well. As counterintuitive as it may sound, going to Japan to teach English felt more achievable than going to London and trying to work in a shop or a bar, as most friends were doing. Every year, the Japanese government went in search globally for university graduates who spoke English and were willing and available to be employed to teach English to Japanese high school students. Because I was so young, the JET program selection panel had not picked me in the first round of successful applicants. But then I received a phone call just weeks before the scheduled departure date to say that someone had pulled out and that a place was now available. I felt ill to the pit of my stomach but said yes anyway. I had not told the selection committee about my eyesight. I was worried that they would not select me if I did. Japanese society had a very long way to go before it would become inclusive of disabled citizens, so it is fair to say there were no provisions to assist me with my sight. To add to the perfect storm that was brewing, I had had no time to mentally prepare for my trip to this foreign land. I had no time to learn basic Japanese, learn about the culture, or just adjust to the vast adventure before me. This was also my first time leaving New Zealand on my own. The first night I arrived in Tokyo perfectly set the scene for the next few months. It was one of the most surreal nights of my life. After a brief induction afternoon with other latecomers on the program from around the world, we all went out on the town that night. Someone took us from our hotel in the middle of Tokyo to Shinjuku, one of the most interesting and youthful parts of Tokyo. We traversed tiny streets filled with noodle and sake bars on either side, caught multiple trains and eventually popped up outside a strange multi-story, rickety old wooden building that looked like a total fire risk. 
Inside, to my absolute astonishment, were tiny Japanese women all dressed up in Bavarian beer clothes, blue skirts and white bodices, serving enormous jugs of beer to customers all seated at long wooden beer hall bench seats. Wagner was blasting through the sound system, a perfectly mad accompaniment to the scene before me. I wondered, where am I? Am I in Japan? Am I in Germany? What is going on? As the night wore on, the Wagner was replaced by the most forlorn and mournful singing I had ever encountered. This was my first and very memorable encounter with the now well-known art form, known as karaoke, and the singer was a Japanese salaryman. His song of choice was, of course, The Long and Winding Road. I could not see the singer myself as we were now perched high up in the eaves of the rickety old building, looking down on the surreal scene like an old-fashioned Elizabethan theatre below us. One of our guides explained the concept of karaoke to us and prepared us for the fact it would be a common occurrence throughout our time in Japan. He was not joking. Can you imagine the pain of listening to teenage boys, their voices breaking, sing to Western pop songs whilst travelling together long distance and without escape on a school tour bus? The next night, I had dinner with the headmaster and teachers from the school I was placed with in a city on the outskirts of Tokyo, in Saitama Prefecture. I had been allocated a local family who would host me for the next few months, and I was assigned the two high schools I would travel between and teach at. The dinner was excruciating. Not only could I not see what was in front of me to eat, but even if I could have, I would not have known what any of it was. To make matters worse, everyone's eyes were on me, the guest of honour and the novelty geishin, or foreigner. They were watching every move I made. Luckily, I did actually know how to use chopsticks. Mum had been an amazing and very adventurous cook, believing in trying out food and recipes from all around the world. So as children, we had had quite adventurous palates. And one thing we had all learnt to do was use chopsticks. My host family seemed very nice. The only issue was that they spoke virtually no English and I spoke no Japanese. So we struggled to communicate beyond the very basic polite greetings. The mum took me out on a few different visits to interesting places around the city. She introduced me to the local ramen noodle bars, the local supermarket, and Shinto shrines. One day she even pointed out her husband's mistress. We also went in search of some clothes for me, but as I was quite tall at 5 feet 7 inches, or 172 centimetres, I was taller than the average Japanese woman and just generally bigger. I certainly found it was impossible to buy shoes that would fit my western, and worse still, kiwi feet. Okidesne was a phrase I came to loathe. It meant big, isn't she? While I am fairly sure this actually meant tall rather than big, it had a quite devastating impact on me. I began to feel oversized, like some kind of giant creature, or like Gulliver in the land of Lilliput. I started to feel a need to shrink down to size, to conform to fit in. I also had the frequent and disconcerting experience of random people coming up to me and touching the light blonde hair on my exposed arms. It was hard not to feel like a one-person freak show. Being in Japan, the land of the fantastic chic bob haircut, I felt confident that I would at least be able to get a wonderful haircut when the time came. 
I had a bob haircut myself, and although I was blonde, I never imagined this would be an issue. My host mum took me to her salon, a small family-run business in a semi-rural area. There was much excitement at the salon, as it turned out I was the first and only Gaetian whose hair they had ever cut and styled. Then, to my horror, my hair was mutilated before my eyes. Large chunks were removed, and my bob disappeared into something unrecognisable. Western European hair is very, very different to thick, straight Japanese hair. Once the mutilation was complete, there was much excitement in the salon. The entire family, three generations who lived upstairs in the same building, all gathered with me outside to take a photo. I was doing my utmost to hold back a flood of tears as I was so aware that my visit and haircut meant so much to this lovely family. I could not let them know how devastated I was. After school finished each day, I increasingly spent time alone in my room. I was feeling more and more alone and cut off from my old life in New Zealand, and yet also unable to connect deeply with my new one. As I simply could not see the words in my Japanese phrasebook, there was very little the family and I could really talk about together. It was dawning on me that my ability to speak the same language was pivotal to getting by in life as a blind person. To be stripped of both sight and speech was entirely different and utterly debilitating. One evening, I choked on something during the meal and went to the bathroom to try and clear my throat. When I came back, my meal had been removed and I ended up with no dinner. I got the feeling that somehow I had caused offence to my host mum, but I had no way of explaining that I was still hungry and had not intentionally choked. I was not rejecting her delicious dinner. Then one day, one of the teachers at school told me that I had to leave my host family. It turned out that they were angry with me for having two showers a day. I was mortified and terribly confused. Mum had told me repeatedly to have two showers a day as it was midsummer and very hot. I was starting to realise that I had an awful lot to learn about Japanese culture. My second host family were very different to the first. They had two sons, both of whom were studying in America and both parents had travelled outside Japan at various times in their lives. They were also both teachers and spoke some English. My new host father was quite a wonderful character and very politically active. He told me about his friends who had been amongst the brave protesters during the recent events in Tiananmen Square. One of them had been a photographer during the violent protests. He had luckily escaped with his life, but he was under constant surveillance. It was also during my time with this second family that I remember watching on the television news the extraordinary moment when the Berlin Wall came down. I had bought a cassette by David Bowie from a street vendor during one visit to Tokyo and listened to it constantly on my Walkman. One of my favourite songs of all time was Heroes, a song about two lovers divided by the Berlin Wall. I adored the line, I will be king and you will be queen just for one day. There was poignant and poetic synchronicity to this. I had just been to see the stunning and very elegant Henry Moore sculpture, King and Queen, at a Japanese art gallery with a friend. The Berlin Wall, David Bowie and Henry Moore are forever intertwined for me with Japan. Then, to add to the magnitude of my global awakening, 
The dreadful day came when the Gulf War started. The day America invaded Iraq, I was at home from school with a terrible stomach bug. As I lay on my futon, I thought the world was going to end. I listened to reports on the news in between bouts of vomiting and diarrhoea. This was when I realised how many American troops were based in Japan, and I discovered what a strong military relationship existed between these two nations. I suddenly felt closer to the awful reality of war than ever before in my life. I had well and truly left the safety of innocent little old New Zealand. Although I had been employed to teach English, I'm not sure that my role in the classrooms could really be classified as teaching. My time was split between two different high schools. I was paired with a lead teacher at each school, and I was a bit like an English-speaking parrot. I often felt my primary role, not that I minded, was to model pronunciation. During one session, I brought in my cassette tape of The Front Lawn, the well-known avant-garde New Zealand band, to play to the students. I wanted to expose them to something other than American English. The students all tended to speak with an American accent, not surprising given the close relationship with American culture. And many of the JET program teachers were from America. I attempted a one-woman rebellion by introducing them to Kiwi English through the front lawn tracks, How You Doing, When You Come Back Home, and Queen Street. It had not occurred to me when I applied for the program that as I was still young myself, just 20, many of my students would be almost the same age as me. Many of them were 18 years old. I recall some of the boys calling out Sexy Mini Son when I was at the front of the classroom. I had a cropped top that I would wear with a high-waisted skirt. This was still reasonably modest, but it was not quite as formal as that of my Japanese colleagues. I had been allocated two low-decile schools. This meant that I had a lively set of students who were not on the narrow, rigid, high-performance pathway that we might associate with Japanese schools. They were huge fun, and I really enjoyed teaching them. My colleagues were also wonderful, generous and kind. However, each school day felt eternally long. I was so limited in what I could actually do with my time, as I could not see to read any additional teaching material. I was pretty much restricted to being the sidekick in the classroom. It is very important in Japanese culture to be seen to be present, even if you are not doing anything. So I recall sitting at my desk for hours on end, with literally nothing to do, day after long day. It was difficult to gain any sense of professional achievement from my work. I felt dreadfully underutilised, but nor could I see any additional ways I could contribute to the schools. I felt quite demoralised. Getting to and from my second school was also quite a mission. It was in a rural location, so it required me to catch several trains and a bus at the end of each day. As I could not see the train stations as we passed them by, I would force myself to stay awake and count each station, so I would know when I was at the correct one. Sometimes I would accidentally get on an express train, and I would end up terribly confused and at the wrong station entirely. But other days I just had to focus with all my energy on the surroundings, listening to the announcements as best I could, and carefully, religiously counting every stop along the way. So I was in a constant state of hypervigilance, and I felt as though I was permanently in survival mode. 
After a few months of teaching and living with my very kind second host family, I decided to get my own tiny apartment. I was trying to gain some sense of control or agency over my life, and I thought that having my own space might help in some way. But one day, as I headed back to my new wee apartment, I got utterly lost. Of course, I could not read street signs and was not yet familiar with the route to my new home. I had worked very hard to memorise key landmarks at my previous homes, but had not yet mastered this one. After an hour or so of cycling and looking around frantically, and somewhat desperately, this was 1990 and well before any cell phones, I eventually found my little apartment building. The most extraordinary thing had occurred while I was at school. The entire building on the corner across from me that had been a key landmark had been completely demolished and removed. Any sign of it had totally vanished. In its place were a series of little white flags stuck into the uneven soil. As I approached my building, I stopped in my tracks. On the steps up to my front door sat a pure white rabbit, like a surreal moment out of Alice in Wonderland. It just stared at me, then slowly hopped off into the pale yellow afternoon light. I now felt totally cut adrift from everything in my life that was once familiar to me. I felt incredibly alone. It was one thing to be blind in New Zealand, where I could at least rely on my ability to ask for help, but quite another to find myself in a country where I could neither see nor speak. I now felt unable to control anything in my life in Japan. What I ate, what I wore, where I went and who I could talk with. I had become extremely anxious and unhappy. I was losing weight at a dramatic rate, and I was having longer and longer bouts of deep depression. Then one morning, something very unusual happened. When I looked in the mirror, I could not recognize the face looking back at me. Who was this strange person staring at me? I did not recognize her. Why wasn't I Japanese? Why didn't I have thick, dark black hair? When I went to catch the trains that day to one of my schools, which was two hours away, I found myself imagining what it would be like to throw myself under the moving trains. There was an awful, terrifying and overwhelming struggle going on inside me. As every painful minute went by, it became harder and harder to hang on to this strange, isolated and unfamiliar life. It became harder and harder to believe that there was any reason to continue or to try and hang on. Just along from my apartment was a small coffee shop. I went in there after school that day, crying uncontrollably. I was desperate to phone mum at home in New Zealand, but I did not know how to use the payphone in the cafe. Then, from somewhere, emerged this gorgeous, kind-hearted man. He had been next door having his hair permed, and came into the cafe with his hair still in a towel. Somehow we managed to communicate, and with his help, we managed to call mum. Mum contacted the JET program and told them what was going on. She told them that she was very worried I was going to kill myself. I knew it wasn't that I wanted to die. I just could not keep on living. These are two very different things. I needed to escape the pain and the suffering I was feeling. I was so terribly thin and terribly lonely, and I felt completely disconnected from myself and the world around me, I felt like a floating hologram of myself. 
At the doctor's I was given a sedative and soon fell into a hazy, semi-conscious calm. I was taken to a psychiatric institution. I was admitted and placed in a locked room by myself. The room had windows facing outside into the countryside. It also, strangely, had windows all around the inside, which meant that the other patients would line up and stare at me as I lay there in my metal hospital bed, with nothing but a sheet covering me. The only other item in the room was a large grey metal cupboard, which was securely locked. I was sedated day and night, not really moving except to go to the bathroom occasionally. Several days later, Mum arrived. To me, she looked like Mary Poppins, only better. She came into my room wearing a long black velvet coat, a glorious hat with feathers in it, and carrying the most unbelievably odd pink umbrella she'd picked up duty-free when she bought her much-loved Chloe perfume. I had promised myself that if Mum made it to Japan, I would try to keep living. Her arrival in this strange land would be enough to let me know that my two worlds were in some way connected after all, that my life before Japan did still exist somewhere. The diagnosis was that I had a disorder known as disassociation, or depersonalization. This is a psychological experience that can occur when a person becomes disconnected from themselves, their identity, and their life, as a result of deep trauma. I had pushed and challenged myself to such an extent that I had broken something inside me and with the world around me. I was no longer with me. For months after I came home, I felt like a strange alien person staring out through Minnie's eyes and body, but with no connection to her or to the world around her. I felt like an imposter or a body snatcher. Arriving back in New Zealand was almost as shocking as my arrival in Japan had been. I remember sitting at Auckland International Airport looking at these strange human beings before me. Gone were the neat, well-dressed Japanese people I had become accustomed to seeing day in and day out. In their place were strange, jandal-wearing, podgy, super-casually-dressed Europeans. To my new Japanese eyes and aesthetic, they did not look attractive. Coming home, I now felt acute culture shock. Where did I fit? Where did I belong? I was well and truly through the looking glass. This was when I realized that there is one constant in my life, and that is me. If I was to have a good life, to be happy, I had to find a way to be deeply with me. And I had to find a way to be with my eyesight, and with the ever-changing world around me. I do so hope you enjoyed listening to my book and podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. It has been an absolute privilege to be able to share this with you. Listen out for the next chapter coming soon. If you would like to purchase the entire book in audio or an array of other accessible formats, including New Zealand Sign Language, or to learn more about my work, visit my website, minib.co.nz. Thank you for taking the time to listen and to be with me. See you next time. With love, Mini B.